So over the past couple of years, uh, I've had the opportunity to do premarital counseling with about seven or eight couples. And uh, there's a session where I will open in prayer, and I'll start by saying, okay, share your biggest pet peeve of your future spouse. It's a great way to start a meeting. You just get both fired up in the first five minutes, and then it's just going to be a good session. But, but here's the thing, and granted, it's a small sample size, I realize, but not once, never has either person sat back and just go, oh, I just don't have one. I, I can't think of it. Like, I mean, fully in love, preparing to get married. It's never like, you need to give me some time here. It's like, wait, what if I have, um, what if I have seven that are tied for first? Can I give you all seven? All right, like how many? Could, I just have to give one? Oh, that's hard. Um, and the reality is, is that anybody we spend a lot of time with, anybody we're around a lot, even those that we love, a, a spouse, a child, a friend, um, if, again, you've got to be honest, they, they do things that bother you sometimes, a lot of times. We're at a point where it might physically hurt to like hear or see this one thing. And, and the reason why I do this is not just to get them fired up, um, but to make the point that here's the thing about pet peeves. If you think about it, it's usually a surface level unimportant thing. And there are times where like, yeah, you just got to let that go. I can't let that bother you. But often, you got to understand why does it bother me? Why does it bother somebody that you love that you do something? Because the reality is that there's something deeper about it that actually is really getting to you. So you could have two separate pet peeves that seem like complete opposites on the surface, but the reality is at their core, it's the same underlying issue. Right? So let me give you an example. Let's say you have a husband or a boyfriend who never opens the door for you in public. Right? Like you are walking and you're going out to the car, to a restaurant, into a store, and like walking, walking, and not only will he not open, he'll like lunge in front of you, like go in first, and maybe give you one of these like after he's in to see if the door's still open. And, and you know, it, just, it just bothers you, and the reality is that it's not just the fact that it's the door. The deeper issue is that um, he, he's being inconsiderate right? Like he just doesn't, like you're not even on his radar. Like he's just in his own little world and just thinking about himself in any given moment. He's just not even considering that you're there. Okay, and then there's a completely different pet peeve. Let's say, hypothetically, you live with somebody who never puts their towel on the rack in the bathroom, right? It's just always thrown, crumpled on the floor. There is a perfectly good hook here right? It's, it's very accessible. Uh, it's at a good location in the bathroom, and yet it is never used. Towels just in the corner on the floor. What, 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 what's, the, what's the deeper issue here? It's the same thing. Just being inconsiderate, right? You have other people in this house. You're not the only one where stuff can be just thrown everywhere. Like, you just didn't take those couple extra seconds to put it on the hook, right? So, on the surface, it, it's just a door, right? And it's just a towel. But at their core, they're identical. There's a same kind of deeper issue that needs to be talked about that could grow to be a real issue in other ways. Well, we're in Mark chapter 2, our sixth uh, week in this book that we're walking through verse by verse. And, and we're in a part in the gospel where Mark is stacking five straight episodes back to back where Jesus is having these controversial moments with the scribes. With This is the first passage. He calls them the Pharisees. Uh, we saw the first one last Sunday where, where Jesus healed the paralytic, but he didn't just heal him of his paralysis. First, he said, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes have an issue with that, right? It was the first evidence that now they don't really like Jesus that much. Like, who is this guy that he thinks he can 
can forgive sins. Only God can do that. And this morning, we're going to see the next two um, controversial episodes, if you will. And, and on the surface, they're going to seem disconnected. They're going to seem like separate issues that the scribes have with Jesus. They're going to seem like just two pet peeves they have with him and his ministry. But when you dig deeper, we'll find they both have something in common. The root issue they have with Jesus is the same. So what is it? What's the real issue here? And what should it mean for us in our lives today? That's where we're going. Mark chapter 2. Read along with me as we... um, We'll be going verses 13 to verse 22 this morning, but uh, for this first section, we'll just do verses 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. First episode is the meal, right? The the meal. So Jesus is at the height of his popularity at this point. Everybody is amazed by his power. Everybody is amazed by his authority, but not everyone likes it. But that's the thing. Either they like you or they hate you. They can't take their eyes off you, right? And so everybody is just eyes on Jesus, and we're told he went out again by the sea. And I think Mark infers that he had to sneak out alone like he did back in chapter 1 because he was by the sea and the crowd was not with him initially. But Mark tells us he went out by the sea and the crowd came to him. Do you see what's happening? Like last time Jesus bounced. The crowd is not letting him get away as easily this time. Right? So now they're just following him. This is like first century paparazzi. Right? It, It words out that Jesus left. He's by the sea. Okay, let's go. We're going to the sea. And so crowds come, and they want to see more, like, amazing things. Like, this guy with paralysis, and he was healed. That was amazing. Jesus, do more. But Mark is very clear. What's he say again? Just like he did in the house. He kept teaching. Crowds came. They wanted to see miracles and power. That was awesome. They wanted to go viral. But Jesus says, no, let me teach. Let me continue to teach the message that he's just teaching them over and over again. Teaching of repentance and forgiveness. And apparently he's teaching on the move. Because he's teaching as he's walking, and the crowds follow him, and he comes upon a tax booth. And there's a man named Levi, the tax collector, and he says simply, follow me. Just like he had done to the four fishermen in chapter 1. And immediately, this tax collector gets up and, and follows him. So on the surface, this is pretty simple to picture, right? Jesus teaching crowd following, comes upon a tax booth, follow me, he gets up, follows him, no big deal, right? Wrong. (laughs) Here's where we need some background to understand the weight of what just happened. Tax collectors were amongst the most hated groups of people in the eyes of first century Jews. 
especially tax collectors who were also Jewish by descent because they were traitors. They were betraying their own people for selfish gain. And the reason, why were tax collectors hated so much? Well, it's because these groups worked like modern-day mafia. Right? Here's how it would work. Okay? In the first century Roman Empire, there's three kinds of taxes. First, there's what's called a land tax. 10% of your harvest shipped to Rome. Once a year, easy to regulate, 10%, let's go back to Rome. Second, a census tax, based upon how many people are living in your home. Again, easy, once a year, how many people we got here, okay, tax goes to Rome. But there's a third tax. It's called the customs tax. And it was a tax on goods, and it would be set up along trade routes or entry points in and out of towns. It worked like a toll booth. Like what we would think as a toll booth. So as you were exporting or importing goods, which is the whole economy is based upon, you'd come upon this booth, and you'd have to pay taxes. So we have a little map. You know I'm a map guy. All right, we got map of Capernaum, right? Red, whatever that is, on top of the screen. And you see it's at these crossroads of all these trade routes going in and out of regions. So people are following through Capernaum all the time, importing goods, exporting goods. And so you had this tax booth set up at all these major roads in and out that they would tax, right? So Capernaum's like a, a huge moneymaker for Rome. But the problem is the Roman Empire spanned across the whole Mediterranean from, from Spain to Syria, largest empire in the world, and it would be a massive operation for them to oversee the daily custom taxes for every town and village. So what did they do? They outsourced the job. And what would happen is that various people in each local village um, or city would join together like an investment group, and they would put bids into Rome that they want to be the group who oversees these custom tax collections. Okay, so now you're Rome, you get all these bids from Capernaum, from various groups in Capernaum, and they select the highest bidder. And that group is now selected as the one who would pay Rome up front an agreed amount, and then they would be in charge of turning around and collecting. So let me put it in terms of U.S. currency to just make this simple. Uh, a group that Levi's a part of uh, creates this investment group. They put a bid in for $1 million to Rome. It's the highest bid Rome gets out of Capernaum, so that this group gets the agreement. They now have to pay this million up front to Rome. They paid up front, and now they turn around, and they're in charge of the collecting. And this is great for Rome, because they don't have to regulate anything. They got paid. And what happens is, now you have a system where they can put together, where they can turn around, and they can figure out a way where they're going to get two million, right? A million to cover that investment, and now a million extra to po pocket as an investment group. And so there's all kinds of regulation because, again, Rome didn't care. They got paid. And so it's a tax booth, all right? So, again, we think toll booth. Think about you going across the GW Bridge on a Monday morning, and a guy's at the toll, and he just looks at your car and goes, all right, 15 bucks today. And you pay, and you go across. You go back Tuesday morning, back to work. And he goes, looks around, 100 bucks. Well, what do you mean? Yesterday was 10 bucks. Yeah, that car looks like uh, you have a nicer car today. 100 bucks. And then you go back the next day, and it's like, ah, oh, 150. I see somebody else in your car. 150 bucks today. And you couldn't cross the GW Bridge and export, import your goods unless you paid this amount. You just couldn't get past. And so, to say the least, tax collectors were despised. They were sellouts to their own people by joining up with this evil empire. 
So as a result, uh, they would be expelled from the synagogue if they entered. They were deemed unclean by the scribes. So any Jewish person who associated with them, who had contact with them, would then be considered unclean. And this is interesting. They're the only group of people that scribes told the fellow Jews, you can lie to them and it's not a sin. It's not wrong. I mean, to think about it, it'd be like if you got captured by somebody and they asked, hey, where's your family? And and you're not going to tell them what your family is. I mean, I think we'd say, that's not wrong if you lie to a terrorist. It's kind of the same thing. The the scribes went to their people and said, it's not wrong if you lie to the tax collectors because they're trying to rip you off. They're trying to do you harm. So that's the background. And with all that, it's Levi, the tax collector, whom Jesus goes right up to where he was, sought him out, and says, follow me. That's a scandalous act. And it doesn't stop there. If that wasn't bad enough, they go back to Levi's home for a meal. And they're around the table with many other tax collectors and what the scribes would deem as sinners, right? Meaning those type of people who the religious just like to look down upon based upon their lifestyles. How could Jesus do that? It bothered the scribes. It was a pet peeve of theirs that he would eat with sinners, But what's the real issue? Is it just the meal? No, it's the fact that Jesus was not conforming to their long-standing traditional rules and regulations of the day. To their religious practices of not associating with these kind of people. Everybody knew this rule. And here he is. He's doing his own thing. A new thing. He's disregarding the code. He's going outside the realm of accepted behavior in the the eyes of the Pharisees. And even worse, there's crowds following him. Now they're going to be led astray. They're watching this guy do this. This is horrible. And how does Jesus respond? He doesn't just say, hey man, you guys are wrong. You guys have abused the position that you've been in. You've gotten it all wrong. Instead, he uses a word picture. He gives this simple illustration. He says, wait a minute. It's not those who are healthy who go to the doctor. It's those who are sick. I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. And and there's irony in that statement, right? Because he's not saying, hey, Pharisees, you guys are good, and you're healthy, and you're righteous, so you don't need me. He's saying, you guys see yourselves as righteous, and therefore, you're not looking for a savior. But to the tax collectors and others whom the Pharisees have shunned, they know they are sinners and they're looking for something and they're looking for someone who can treat their biggest need. But notice, and this is important, right? Jesus is not saying, hey, their sin's not that big of a deal. He's not saying it doesn't really matter what they're doing, right? Passages like this, they get butchered all the time by people who will say, see, Jesus ate with tax collectors. We shouldn't judge anybody by the lives that they're living. We should accept everybody's way of life because that's what Jesus did. It's right here. And it's like, no. (laughs) Jesus eating with them is not affirming their lifestyle and their sin. It's literally the direct opposite. These are people he is called to love, called to serve, and called to reach so that they will repent of their sin, so that they will be transformed by him, so they will receive treatment in a Savior. So let me paraphrase what Jesus is saying. He's saying, um, to those who think they're good, I got nothing to say. 
To those who think that they're good, I, I got nothing for you. I can't help you. But to those who know they are sinners, I've come to offer them new life. Such powerful truth there, so, so, much, so full of hope. Because do you know what this means? It means no one is too far gone. Levi the tax collector is following him. No one is out of reach of God's scandalous transforming grace. And he comes to you. He doesn't wait for you to impress him. He comes to where you are and says, follow me. Let me set you free from this life. Let me show you a better way. He, he invests his time in them so that they would be transformed through him. Have you lived a modern-day life of a tax collector? Are, are you sitting here, and maybe nobody else even really knows about it, maybe they do, but in your mind you're going, man, all this good news, and Jesus can't transform, like, that can't possibly be an option for me. The things that I've done, the life that I've been living, the choices that I've made, let this be a bold affirmation that that kind of life that's too far gone doesn't exist. Jesus has not only not written you off, you're the reason he came. I'm the reason he came to offer new life. And then a word for those of us who are already in Christ by the grace of God. Um, let us learn from our Savior here. Seriously. Where are we seeking out the lost? Where are we looking for opportunities and creating margin in our calendars to spend time with those, to seek out those who the world would write off as too far gone? Maybe even the church has written them off as too far gone. Here at Grace, we often talk about how we seek to keep our ministry structure simple. Uh, we have programs, but we don't want to just load our ministry with programs where on any given week you're having to come to this facility five, six times a week. And we're just filling up your calendar with activities all throughout the week. What we say and we try hard, and it's hard to do. It's hard to stay simple, but we just want to do a few things really well. We want to do a few things that where you are equipped to go actually be a Christian in the world. We want to give you the margin to love and to serve and to spend meaningful time with non-believers. I'll say at our Discover Grace class, I say, here at Grace Church, we're not trying to fill up your calendar. We're trying to equip you to live out your already full calendar. To spend meaningful time with non-believers so that through us, God will work to transform and bring restoration. No one was too far gone for Jesus to seek out. And no one should be too far deemed too far gone by the church. Let it be true of us that we intentionally seek out time to invest in relationships with all kinds of people. All right, let's keep going. That was the meal. Now verses 18 through 20. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Verse 20, The days will come 
when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. All right, the second pet peeve here, right? The second episode. First, we had the meal, and now we have the fast. So we can kind of see what Mark is doing here, right? The Pharisees are first, they're mad at Jesus because he's eating with people. And he shouldn't be, right? And now they're mad again at Jesus because his disciples are just eating all the time. Right? Food-based pet peeves. And the Pharisees are basically saying, Hey, Jesus, if you're so great, and you are serious about worshiping God and living out your faith, then why are your followers appearing to be the least devout of all? You know a good teacher by his followers, right? Your followers seem like they're in last place. What's up with that? How could we take you seriously if your disciples don't even fast? Again, background here is going to help us see what's happening. So by the time of the first century, the, the Jewish elite had developed a long tradition of rules and regulations around fasting that were outside the realm of Scripture. So the Old Testament mandates just one fast a year to Israel. One time a year on the Day of Atonement, all the nation was to fast, have a fast of repentance that they were to observe. And then there were several examples in the Old Testament of what you would call voluntary fasts. And it was always something like uh, an issue, a trial that led them to fast. So there was during times of just mourning, they decided to fast. Times of repentance. Times where God's people were just seeking out help and safety and wisdom in a difficult trial. And so they fasted. Um, but by the time of the first century... There had grown a long-standing oral tradition that put specific rules on fasting. Ancient documents tell us that the Pharisees fasted on Monday and Thursday of every single week and expected their followers to do likewise. And they would do it in part to make themselves look gaunt, right? Because the more gaunt you looked, the more holy you looked. And the more devout you appeared. And it was always a time of mourning. So Mondays and Thursdays, they fast for a time of mourning to ask God to send a Messiah to deliver us from Rome. Send a Messiah who's going to overthrow Rome, free us of this political oppression. And fasting in and of itself was not the problem. It's the motivation that was the problem. And the fact that they wanted to be very public about it. Very out in the open. They wanted everybody to know. Because they wanted people to be impressed. Man, twice a week. No food. Every single week. Man, they must really love God. This is maybe a poor parallel, but it would be like today. If whenever you got within two blocks of church on a Sunday morning you roll down the windows and start blasting K-Love. And you quick put a Jesus sticker on your bumper. And so you roll up the church and people will go, wow, they're so bold in their faith. They must really love God. They're devout. Unless you're still a star 91.1 person. That's on you, all right? But 99.1 or K-Love. So Jesus is taken to task here. And again, in the last episode, he doesn't just tell them they're wrong. 
He uses a word picture. There's something to be said for this, right? Through story, through illustrations, it helps things understand better. And, and he uses a word picture to describe why are his disciples not fasting? And the reason, he says, is they're at a wedding. And weddings are times for feasting, not fasting. Jesus is the bridegroom at a wedding, right? So if fasts are meant to, to seek God in a powerful way, to, to, to want and yearn for his presence. He says, they don't need to do that right now because I'm here. I am with them. There is a time to fast, but it's not when you're at a wedding. I'm sure some of you have already gotten invitations to weddings that are happening this year, right? And what usually happens with the wedding invitation? What comes along with it? What falls out of the envelope? A little card. And it says, we hope you'll join us at the reception, and here's four options for food, right? There's steak, and there's chicken, and there's a veggie option, and what am I missing? Seafood, all right? Um, by the way, Rochelle and I have this down to an art. I go steak, she goes chicken, we go splitsies on the wedding day, all right? We don't even have to talk about it anymore, all right? It's just understood, great plan. But here's the thing. It would be inappropriate to fast at a wedding because it's a time for celebration, especially with the per-plate costs in our metropolitan area, all right? If the father of a bride saw you fasting at a wedding, you'd get some side-eye the whole night. You'd be like, you, you, you eat all of that food, right? You, I don't want to see anything left on that plate, right? That was an expensive plate, right? It would be inappropriate for us to fast at a wedding. The presence of Jesus in their midst was a time for feasting, not fasting. He's the bridegroom. And the Pharisees are so concerned with themselves, so just concerned with their religious routines, that it's blinding them to what God is doing in their midst. The Messiah is here. And they're fasting, asking for a Messiah. So what's this mean for us today? Does this mean that fasting is no longer necessary? That Christ came and you can just fast her off the table? You can stop feeling guilty for the fact that you don't do it? Is it even wrong to fast? No. Because you notice what Jesus said in verse 20? He put a strange wrinkle in this illustration. He says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Huh? That's kind of strange, Jesus. The, the groom taken away from his wedding, right? By the way, he's not talking about leaving in a limo while people throw rice and bubbles, right? This is not a Pinterest departure uh, for the groom because in the first century, the wedding celebrations were up to a week long and the groom and the bride were the last ones standing. They partied with everybody who came through and they did not stop until all the guests left. So what's this about the groom being taken from a wedding? That's kind of a weird picture to put out there. And here is Jesus in his first direct reference to his own death in the Gospel of Mark. Did you see it? The first time he indicates that he will be taken away by force, he won't be here forever. He's not the Messiah who has come to overthrow Rome. He's the Messiah who has come to be crucified on a Roman cross. Nobody gets it. I mean, how could they, right, at this point? But he says, in that day, after that happens, oh, my people will fast. Because his presence is no longer with them. 
And there will be a call on the lives of his followers to seek God, to, to long for his second coming when he will return and consummate his purpose to finally free his people from this fallen world. So Jesus says, oh, they will fast. Not just that they can and it will be available to them and it's an option. He says, they will. And we see the early church in the books of Acts was a fasting church in multiple places. And it's a word for us today to consider what this ought to look like in our lives individually, what it ought to look like as a church, because, listen, it's a discipline that has been largely ignored and forgotten in modern-day American church. A fast is an expression of this earnest longing for the second coming of Christ and the completed coming of the kingdom and and wisdom in our lives for various reasons as we get to that point. It is a purposeful neglect of food so that we might feel a growing angst and knowledge that we need God even more than we need food. It's a fast where rather than us serving our food by serving our hunger by giving it food, we allow our hunger to serve us, to bring us into greater need and desire for the presence of Christ. And it's not done just to be seen by others. It's not done to be posted on your social media account. It's not something that puts us in the spotlight and how holy we are. It's something that reveals an inner desire for him. And it's something for us to consider All right, let's tie these two episodes together and land this plane. Verses 21 and 22. Jesus goes on, No one sews a piece of unstruck cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. We saw the meal, and we saw the fast. So what's the point? What's the point? Jesus is bothering these Pharisees, and on the surface, it's two separate pet peeves, right? It's eating with sinners. It's neglecting to fast. But at its core, the deeper issue is the same. It's that Jesus is not conforming to the religious practices of the day. He's not falling in line with the way they do things. He's doing a new thing. Why isn't he? Why isn't he falling in line? If he loves the Jewish people, especially being a Jew himself, then why be divisive with the leadership? And Jesus ties it together again, shouldn't surprise us by now, with two word pictures piece of cloth and a wineskin, two pictures that say the same thing, and in its meaning, it provides the whole point of what Jesus is doing. Because when a piece of old cloth uh, gets old and older, it gets battered, right? It gets stretched, and eventually it gets washed, and it gets dried, and it gets washed, and it gets dried, and it stretches out over time, and eventually a hole appears in it. And this was before hole and clothes were cool, all right? It wasn't cool in the first century, and so now there's a temptation. You have this hole to take a new cloth, uh, cut out a patch, and just put it on the old one. Like, it makes common sense, right? But Jesus says it doesn't work. Because now you have a new patch on an old piece of clothing that is now stretching and washing and drying at a different pace than the rest of the cloth, and it will eventually tear away, and now you have a bigger hole than you had to begin with. 
And then Jesus says, similarly, you don't put new wine into old wineskins. So, so wineskins uh, were made with goat skin. It was this strong, kind of sturdy skin that was made into a pouch. And when wine is put in it, the wine spreads and it ferments. And as a result, over time, it gets poured out and put back in. It dries and it, and, and it gets wet again. And what happens? It stretches. It becomes brittle and it becomes cracked. So then, if you have new wine and you put it in an old wine skin, again, wine spreads and it ferments on an already brittle skin. And now the thing's going to burst and you lose both. In both cases, Jesus says, you can't simply add something new to what already exists and expect it to work out. It never does. And therein lies the point. Jesus has come into the world to make all things new and not simply perpetuate the old traditional ways of the Pharisees that have gotten away from the true meaning of Scripture, of God's grace and forgiveness He's not simply an add-on. He's not an add-on to the religion of the day. He can't just be rolled into what they're already doing. He's come to do a new thing. This doesn't mean that Jesus is God's plan B, that God now changed his mind. Jesus, you got to go in there and save the day now. This means that Jesus is fulfilling what God has always promised, to be the original one uh, foreshadowed in Genesis chapter 3 that would come and deliver death a death blow to death itself, to be the true Messiah, to usher in a new covenant of grace that will be available to all people of all nations, where through his death on the cross and his victory over the grave, men and women can be transformed from the inside out through faith in him. When he said, follow me to Levi, He didn't mean, hey, come add me on to what you're already doing. He doesn't say, come let me make your life a little bit better. Let me get you out of this jammed up spot. Let me improve things. No, he says, leave everything behind and follow me. I'm not coming to make you better. I've come to make you new. And this is good news. It's a celebration. It's a new union like we celebrate at a wedding feast. And I want us to consider this as we close. All too often, Jesus is treated like he's an add-on to our lives. Sure, Jesus, let me move some stuff around in my heart and give you a slot. This is good. This is good now. I've got some Jesus in my life. Where he's not coming to change or replace, he's just coming to be rolled into what we already have going on. Where, where Jesus is more like a consultant and not the king of my heart, like we sang this morning. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, come on in, but you still answer to me. I'll, I'll, let you, I'll let you bring your voice to the table. I'll let you weigh in from time to time, but I'm still king here. Jesus is saying, man, that doesn't work. It might actually end up doing more harm than good in the long run. It might actually make a bigger hole than existed in your heart in the first place. Jesus has come to make all things new, to replace, to say, follow me, to offer life and restoration in the midst of a world that is fractured and broken. And it's not easy to follow him. I wonder what Levi thought in those moments. It had to be hard, but ultimately it was worth it. 
and the call on our lives like it was for Levi. It's not partial acceptance. It's not let me try this out. It's not let me roll it into my team and let Jesus be top consultant. It's leaving your team and submitting to Jesus as king and trusting in his finished work on the cross to make all things new. And so, in closing, I want to encourage you with this. This truth of Jesus making all things new was displayed in this text in a subtle way, but powerful way. You know that tax collector named Levi? He's better known to you by another name. Everyone knew him by Levi, the tax collector, but when Jesus called him out of that life to follow him, he did what he often does to his followers. He gave him a new name. We know him by Matthew, a disciple, an apostle, a writer of the gospel of Matthew, because you see, the world saw Levi the traitor, but Jesus saw Matthew the disciple. The world saw Levi the thief, but Jesus saw Matthew the early church apostle. The world saw Levi the man who was just too far gone, but Jesus saw Matthew the gospel writer who would be quoted by the church forever long after everybody else is gone. Listen, the world might define you in any number of ways based on the things you've done and the person you were, but Jesus sees you as someone else, a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come, and if we answer the call to follow him, we will never be left lacking ever again. Let's pray. Father, pray that your spirit would join in with your word and apply heavily on our hearts however this needs to be applied this morning. For those of us who have not yet trusted in you, who have not yet made you king of their hearts to follow you. Father, let this be a powerful affirmation that no one's too far gone. And nothing has happened before walking in this room that would deem them too far gone. And Father, for those of us who praise God have been saved by grace through your Son, I pray this would be a powerful word to us that you can use us and our stories to reach a world that others would say are too far gone. Father, let us fix our eyes on you either way this morning. Let our hearts be stirred for you. Let an angst grow in our soul that equips us to live for you. And it's in the name of your beautiful son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.